0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today I'm speaking to lead sports scientist and conditioning coach at Harlequins Rugby, Tom Batchelor. Tune in to episode 236 of the Pacey Performance Podcast, so I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Tom Batchelor onto the podcast today. So I was lucky enough to host a panel at the Kitman Labs Performance Summit in London a couple of weeks ago and met Tom for the first time. And given that meeting and given that panel, it was an obvious stalking opportunity for me to to call a Tom and ask him to come on the podcast so in this episode we discuss everything from monitoring to conditioning in season to readiness protocols and how they use and maximize uh, the kitman lab system what was also super interesting in this conversation with Tom is his background coming from uh, an investment banking background so it was really interesting to get that take and how that them skills developed in that environment have been able to transfer to his role as lead sports scientist at Harlequins and something that it sounds like he is very much in demand for given that background with some of the commercial partners over at Harlequins so it was really interesting to get that take from Tom so whether you're involved in rugby union rugby league football or any other sport I'm sure you'll love this episode with Tom This episode of the of Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you are able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. Head over to their website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can do, I and mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So, iMeasureU is used by leading biomechanist researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi limb inertial data in the field. So, iMeasureU recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor and app for lower limb load monitoring uh, and helps practitioners optimize return to play for running-based sports. So unlike GPS, AMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two very small synchronized high frequency tibial one sensors which quantify three things. The intensity of each step an athlete takes, precise left and right lower limb asymmetry and cumulative tibial load. So iMeasureU is now part of Vicon and works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world. So if you want to get more information and know more about iMeasureU, head over to the website imeasureu.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureu. So without further ado, over to the episode with Tom Batchelor. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this evening, I am delighted to welcome Tom Batchelor, who is the lead sports scientist and conditioning coach at Harley Quinn's Rugby. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Hi, mate. Thank you for uh, giving me time on a Thursday evening to have a little chat. You
1: yeah, know, I'm more than uh, more than happy to, mate. It's, uh, it's always nice to get invited onto these things and uh, to chat a little bit. Absolutely. Thanks, mate. So
0: anyone that doesn't know who you are, you just want to give us a bit of a background on yourself. I know you've got a bit, quite an interesting journey, Maybe it's quite different to what previous guests have had on. So just give us a little bit of a backstory of you, what you've done before, and then we'll move on to what you're doing at Quinn's.
1: Yeah, sure. So it is quite an unconventional route that I took into um, strength and conditioning and sports science. Originally yeah. at university, I did... Um, well, actually, originally, I started off doing economics at Loughborough, and I managed like three months of that, and I was like, numbers and uh, economics probably aren't for me. I asked to leave, and they said, why don't you switch over to our sports science course? And I thought, at a time like that, something was incredibly appealing to me, but I thought I need to go and get a proper job. So I left and ended up going back to university the year after to study history at UCL. Uh, spent three years studying any, anything from like the history of violence through to like American history, uh, and ended up landing a job in banking, which I only actually lasted for about three years. And probably looking back on it now, the the dislike of economics I had when I was at Loughborough probably should have like foreshadowed my dislike of banking. Um, <laughs> but like hindsight's a wonderful thing. Um, and so then I left banking. So I, at the time, I'd moved around to Guildford, and that's where Harlequins train. And it kind of reignited this idea in my head that potentially I could get into SC and sports science. So I did a, I did a PT course on the weekends whilst I was still banking. Um, so sorry to interrupt,
0: Tom. When you when you say banking, what do you mean?
1: What would oh, you? so was I was. It's equity derivatives, volatility arbitrage, sales trading for whoa, whoa. A, <laughs> French, a French <laughs> bank called BNP Paribas. Uh, so originally, I actually signed up um, to work for Bank of America in Canary Wharf, um, and then the, the division I worked for got bought out by BNP Paribas. And this was the, so within my first couple of weeks, so I started in 2008 on the desk because we'd been bought all of our trading activity was then frozen mm-hmm. because bank of America doesn't care if you make money. Um, and because you're going across to BMP power, they just make you wind down all your positions. So I spent the entire summer watching the summer Olympics um, in Beijing and I became an expert oh, on, and I, on everything from water polo to, to all sorts of stuff. Like, and literally our, like wall to wall coverage, we just watched it and we had this little, you get, um, they call it a Chinese wall. It's based like an information wall. Um, so in terms of your tech is like, si- um, side off from the rest of the company, but also you're behind like frosted glass windows. So you can't talk to anyone, you can't get access to any bank of American information or that kind of jazz. Um, so yeah, then it, I started at the French bank, In October, and that's when Lehman's crashed. So within my first couple of weeks of working in banking, like the entirety of the banking world went into absolute (laughs) meltdown. Uh, like one of my first calls to a client was to an Icelandic bank called Kalkting, um, which, like, if you know anything about the history of like the Icelandic banking, that was one of the banks that went under and absolutely like decimated their economy. So like there was this really bizarre thing where I kind of thought I was getting into this sort of like, world of like wall street and the wolf of wall street and stuff like that and it could not have been any different um and i think like the f- thing is the first couple of years you get paid very well and it's your first job out of university and all my mates work in the- or they still work in the city so like it was quite easy to sort of like be blind to what you didn't enjoy but after a couple of years i was like this is just not for me the office life the commute i mean also i just didn't really feel engaged with. What I was doing, I was simply just sat in front of a spreadsheet watching numbers go up and down, um, which in part is what I do now with uh, <laughs> many sports scientists can probably relate to that, but at least I get to go outside. I get to see sunlight occasionally and, uh, and I still get to do um, some coaching and stuff. So yeah, so that was the banking part of it. So I started PTing uh, whilst I was still doing that because I thought to myself, I want to give a, the S&C stuff a crack, but I've got to be realistic that. If I'm going to leave banking, I have to be happy with the idea that I might just be a personal trainer for the next 10 years and work with Joe Public. And that, to be honest, I was completely happy with. Like, I just like um, experimenting with the wrong term with people, but I like the whole process of training. Like, try something out, does it work? Come back to it, revisit it, revise it, make it better. Um, And I also signed up for the MSC at uh, St. Mary's in Twickenham, which is how I met uh, John Goodwin and uh, Dan Cleather down there. So I did my MSC whilst I was PTing at the Surrey Sports Park, when then I was also lucky enough to meet James Wild. So I then did the internship at the Surrey Sports Park and looked after some um, junior GB skiers, the Surrey at the time they were Surrey Heat, I think they're Surrey Scorchers now basketball team down there, and a couple of other like university level athletes and stuff. Uh, and then I just managed, because at that time Harlequins were using the public facilities at the sports park. Um I just managed to get talking to John Dams and Gareth Tong and they sort of said, why don't you come and Spend a year volunteering with us, um, which kind of like dovetailed quite nicely with the fact that I was PTing in the same gym, so I could easily like just switch over t-shirts and gain great experience with Quins, whilst also uh, actually like I think personal training for me was a really beneficial experience because you learn to coach and you learn to coach a lot of different people and you come across a lot of different problems, um, and that was really important for me. So. Once I got involved with Quinn's, one thing kind of led to another and my ability with a spreadsheet kind of reared its head head again, so like my banking days kind of came back to help me and I then started looking at all their GPS data and, and how they were managing that and sort of put some systems in place and I was just lucky enough to get a job at the end of that year and that's now I think five or six years ago. Um, so that it's been quite like a journey within that. Like we've gone from just starting to, when I first started, just starting to collect the GPS data through to what it is now, where it's, it's quite an integral part of what we do on field at Quinn's. Um, but yeah, I was just really, really lucky the whole way through from the minute I left banking to sort of go to somewhere like St. Mary's to get a really good academic, um, grounding. And then also meeting people like Wildy and then, um, Andre Quinn, who was a, Quinn's and then Gaz and the rest of the guys who are still at Quinn's like it was really fortunate for me to sort of land in that kind of a place because it I was given enough responsibility to learn enough of stuff by myself but also like enough support to kind of be guided, which makes a massive difference um so yeah that's that's how I've got to where I am really from from history to banking and everything in between
0: nice so just out of interest and for my own kind of selfish um interest I guess what what kind of hours were you doing at the banking? Like, it's obviously it's played out as if it's like a twenty four seven thing. And you said you get paid reasonably well. What were the hours like? And is that does that kind of live up to the, the, what everyone perceives? And what would you get like leaving university into that kind of in terms of salary environment?
1: Yeah. So no, no. So like, it's uh, the hours like you'd expect it to be at your desk by seven, uh, and you'd probably sure. be sat at your desk until at least six or seven. Um, right. The thing is with that is like because you're dealing with uh, so a lot of the products you deal with in derivatives are like OTC products, which basically means that they're not potentially traded across a market. Like you'd have heard a lot of stuff around when the crash happened like 10 years ago, 11 years ago, there was loads of um, discussion about the regulation of these OTCs and some of them now are regulated, etc. But basically, what it means is that they can be traded anytime like around the world, so it's a 24 7 market. So you have to be at your desk in case something kicks off. So when it's like seven to seven sounds long, but sometimes some of those hours can be very, very quiet. Like in the summer when everyone goes away, especially in a French bank, when the entirety of the country goes away, it is very, very quiet. Um, I had a lot of American clients, so I was really quiet until about midday and then it would all kick off. Um, but that had like a lot of benefits for me because it meant I got to travel to New York quite a bit. Uh, all of my clients loved like college football and stuff. So it indulged my interest in sport quite a lot in terms of like building relationships and stuff like that, uh, in terms of the money, uh, like, so your start my starting salary in the bank is probably still 10 grand above what my salary is now at Harlequins. So like when I said that money's fairly <laughs> good, the money's fair, the money, the money for looking back at it now, the money for the level of experience and knowledge I had at that time is ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. the, I'm not knocking grad schemes at banks or saying it's wrong, but like it, it is, it's like any marketplace, like that's the going rate and that's what they'll pay. And like, you get a gold, a golden handshake, which I'm not sure is the, the correct term, but they, they'll pay you literally just for, for saying yes. For the first six months, they will pay for all your financial services, exams, etc. So yeah, like it is pay wise it is a different planet from S and and sports science. But, um, it's well. The way I felt about it was very much a job, like it. Whereas SNC Sports Science is not a job. It's um, something I'm lucky enough to do that to, to feel like it's uh, not. When I say hobby, like it's not to downplay it. But I think anyone who's really passionate about sports science and SNCs is aware that we're quite lucky to do what we do. Um, of course. So yeah, if, you, yeah, it's a very different world. You take the head for that. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was miserable. So now I'm much happier. So that's that's a, a big positive.
0: Absolutely let's have a little chat about the journey, because, sorry, we've talked about the journey, as in your journey, but journey to quantify training low, because that's a big part of your remit as yes. um, yeah, in yeah. your position at, at Quinn's. Do you just want to give us a bit of an overview of, of that journey over the last five years and kind of the questions that you've wanted to answer, whether that be you personally or coming from a coach's point of view or the staff member's point of view, and then we'll have a little deep,
1: bit of a deeper dive into the GPS stuff. Yeah, sure, yeah. So I think... Um my journey is probably fairly typical in that, like I said, like I kind of got um, a job because I could uh, warehouse, interpret, analyze all the GPS data we're getting, um, which is a benefit for me in terms of getting a job, but then probably led to some pitfalls early on in that because as a sports scientist, SNC coach, whatever it is, you're given this box of GPS units and they're like, right, go and quantify training. So your world becomes the GPS in terms of a method of quantifying training. Uh, and initially that seems like a really uh, good idea. Like, you know, it gives you this velocity, accelerations, etc., etc. But obviously the more you dive into it and the validity of certain measures that the unit kicks out, you're kind of then left with – uh, velocity based measures. So like, you know, cutting up whether it's absolute bands, relative bands, however you cut up your bands, you have these sort of buckets of distance, um, that you get off the GPS and like really quickly you realize that in rugby union, that's a fairly imperfect way of quantifying the training stress. Um, just in terms of the problem with like velocity based quantification, you're always assuming that every slow meter is an easy meter. And that's hugely flawed in rugby because obviously like mauls, scrums and lots of the, uh, high impact movements occur, or they create like a a slow velocity trace because obviously two bodies collide and slow down, but yet that's probably one of the most injurious and, uh, fatiguing elements of the game. And then next to that as well, you have also got the problem that someone can be trying to move really quickly, but because they're so tired, they're moving slowly. So like if you set someone off to run as fast as possible, for for six minutes they'll start off at a sprint and end up like dropping down to a walking pace but they'll be trying to move as fast as they can when they're at that walking pace. Now your GPS system is going to tell you that that walking pace is easy so it moves into your whether you term it like non-meaningful or like below mass or like below jogging speed whatever however you've chosen to, to cut up the GPS like that now gets put into that bucket and like if all you're looking at to quantify training is those numbers it's really really flawed. Um, So over that time, we've obviously evolved to go from using GPS, then using heart rate data, but obviously that has some inherent flaws in it as well. And now where we're probably at is we're using all the video footage that's always been captured by our analysts, and we're using that. For several years now in conjunction with like tackle counts uh dominant tackles all that kind of stuff so you can start to quantify what fitness really is for the sport um and we're now currently sort of engaging with catapult to use their video software that links the gps in because that probably now gives you that next level where you can start to ask some of the answer some of the questions that you get from the coaches about how hard are people working in defense how hard are they working in kick chase like is there even a relationship between sort of work rate and successful outcomes in attack, et cetera, and stuff like that, which it's not that it, it's just taking the GPS beyond just purely telling you how far, like all the GPS tells you is how fast that person is moving at any one moment in time. And then you just cut it up into certain buckets. We're just trying to move away from that or beyond that. So you actually get a bit more context for everything, both from like a physical performance perspective, but also from like a technical and technical performance perspective in terms of giving the coaches a bit more information.
0: Mm-hmm. So so over and above the integration and providing the context, how are you analyzing the data to actually make more sense of them, like you put it, the, the six minute run, that, that last minute of like a slow plod, but actually been really, really hard? How are you analyzing that and making sense of that?
1: Uh, so that is very much our our work in progress so a lot of it to be honest at the moment we use a lot of video footage and we try and tie in with what the analysts do so like I think most rugby union teams and probably league teams as well to be fair work off of some sort of like uh, like time to feet kind of metric so we try and uh, we try and look at every individual and see like that's one of our measures of fitness so we're looking at people like how far you travel in a game in terms of distances is largely governed partly by the referee and how much ball in play time he allows or the infringements in the game allow and then what we're really looking at is the the ability or the, the capacity of the guys to do what we want to do so how often are they getting into the right positions in certain like tactical formations how quickly do they get back to their feet etc so what you obviously want to do is produce a rugby player who's fit enough to put our game plan on the park so if someone's always slow or gets slower getting up from a ruck that's a sign of fatigue and, and a sign of a lack of fitness for their role defensively if you then start seeing that they're not getting into the defensive line in the right positions that our defense coach wants them to be in that's a sign of a lack of fitness to us likewise like we know certain shapes the boys should be in if you start seeing that the guys aren't getting into these patterns then that is a sign of a lack of fitness to us because like game rugby games we've seen like we've had some of our biggest losses have had like our players have their highest meters per minute so meters per minute has become a really poor score of fitness in terms of like suitability to be successful in a task. It just tells you that they've run a lot because they're chasing their tails. So we're just trying to move beyond that model. It's not to say that that high meters per minute doesn't mean that that running is not fatiguing. Like certainly it is. It's like one part of that puzzle. But we're just trying to use the video footage now more to inform what we're looking at so we can start answering those questions like who are the guys who are never out of position, always back on their feet, and their fitness is not costing them any, or us anything in the game. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So, so what, if you if you put in obviously uh, doing well, put in context around the workload that these guys are actually going through. But what what numbers are you actually referring to and using to paint the picture that's not painted in just watching the the game? <laughs>
1: Does that make sense? No, so what? Do you mean, like, how do we use the GPS or...?
0: Yeah, so what what metrics are you actually looking at? Are you kind of hanging your hat on certain things or are you using the video and then using the numbers to kind of back up what you see on the video rather than the way around?
1: Yeah, so I think the, the thing we find is you can see that certain guys... So what we do is we have them split into... So to go the whole way back, our GPS is split into absolute and relative bands. So the absolute bands give us an idea of, like, performance. Like, a fitter winger can probably cover more distances above five meters per second. Um, and if a guy can cover less than that, then it's suggestive that he can't do as much of that workload potentially. We then use the relative measures to look at how stressful that work is because for a lot of our guys like five meters per second, which is the general definition of high speed running. And I'm not really sure like where that's come from in terms of the absolute bands. Yeah. But you then take the relative bands and you're now like, well, actually for him to cover that distance it's not a lot of stress for him whereas other individuals you might look at and you're like he that takes a huge chunk out of him like in terms of using the relative scales versus the absolute scales like absolutely he's not actually doing very much but relative he's doing a huge amount and that's where we started to use the gps metrics to be like well he's giving as much as he can and then he's redlining every single time but because he's not particularly fast because he's not particularly fit this is starting to cost him more and then when we use the video footage, because what we see, and I remember seeing it really early on when we had players like Nick Easter playing for us, is there are some people who are just very efficient rugby players. Like There's that quite famous uh, thing with LeBron James where it turned out LeBron James in several uh, playoff series was running the least out of anyone on the court, but he's clearly one of the best players to ever play the game. And that's one of the traps that I've always been mindful of falling into with talking to the players and also to the coaches is where I don't believe and sometimes I see... I'm getting, you're sort of judging people off of Twitter, but I'll see people put up these sort of graphs and metrics where they're like, yeah, high meters per minute and high ball involvements. Now, the high ball involvements, I, I kind of understand. I'm like, you want to get your hands on the ball more often and as long as they're positive impacts, because no one, like getting your hands on the ball more often and going backwards is not a good sign. Getting your hands on the ball more often going forwards, that's, that's the kind of player you want. I don't know then if the meters per minute actually matters that much in terms of like, oh, he runs loads, but he doesn't do much like that's useless to everyone. And we've seen with some of our players where our, uh, high level guys potentially run less, but they're way more effective because their positioning is better. They read the game better and they're just, they have greater impact. Um, and we've seen some individuals, some young guys who've come in who are, uh, very fit. And actually their meets per minute over the games has been quite interesting over the last couple of years. You watch some individuals and their meets per minute per game come down, but they became way more effective players because they're no longer like a, uh, rabbit is the, is the wrong rabbit in headlights is the wrong term for, for one of our guys. But do you know what I mean? Like when they first get into the first mm, team yeah. squad, some of them are just running everywhere, just trying to cover everything. Um, and I think actually looking at the effectiveness of their play gives you a better idea of fitness because fitness is suitability for a task, right? So we're looking at it being like, we want guys who are really, really fit, but actually when they play rugby, they're where they need to be, when they need to be there and their fitness is never letting them down. Um, and likewise, with like our outside backs and stuff, when they get their hands on the ball, we want them to be fit enough, that they're fresh enough to be fast enough to beat their opposing man. And that's kind of like where our our ideas around um, fitness and conditioning really come from. So, how are you quantifying? Are you using the
0: the, uh, the units to quantify the the real tough parts of the of the game that really take out the the guys, as in the stuff that's like that collisions or the the stuff that is actually static?
1: No, because we just, we don't find it to be particularly reliable, to be yeah. honest. Okay. Um, so we use, that's where we rely on our analysts. We go back and see how many scrums they were. We include resets. Every individual that gets logged, we then just look at how many tackles they've made, clear outs, carries, et cetera, the success rate of those as well. Cause obviously what you want is a guy like, so Chris Roch was the best example where he'll make like sometimes well over 20 tackles a game, but, and all of them will also be dominant or effective, however you want to term it. Um, and that's what you want. Because that's the other thing as well. It's like sometimes we'll see you can get guys coming to the team who may get to every breakdown or may get to every collision, but they're not as effective when you get there. And then that's like another marker of lacking fitness, if that makes sense.
0: So we're just gonna take a very quick break with Tom. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss how Tom and Harlequins integrate new players into their system how they utilize and maximize the kitman lab system and also some books that have influenced tom and tom's practice along the way but just before we do get into part two i want to say a big thanks to fatigue science for sponsoring this episode today so fatigue science have exclusive access of the saft model which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Dunican, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAF model analyzes a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're gonna undertake that day. So as you can tell it is much more than a sleep tracking device, however it is a sleep tracking device but not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So a really impressive bit of kit is the ReadyBand from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguescience.com, but also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. So also sponsoring today's podcast is St. Mary's University. So St Mary's is internationally renowned as a leader in strength and conditioning education and it was the first UK institution to offer an undergraduate degree in strength and conditioning and its master's programme which I have been through personally and would highly recommend was the first part-time distance learning strength and conditioning course in the UK and it's the emphasis on the development of coaching skills and relevance of theory to practice which makes St Mary's stand out from the other courses that are out there So both uh, undergraduate and postgraduate courses are delivered in the purpose-built, state-of-the-art Performance Education Centre. And anyone that's been to St Mary's will know what a fantastic uh, facility that is. And is taught by staff that are highly experienced coaches and expert sports scientists. And one thing that students are really on the lookout for now is universities' links with uh, professional sport and that's definitely something that St Mary's has with their links with multiple football clubs across London in Chelsea, Crystal Palace, Fulham but also uh, London Irish in Rugby and Sutton Tennis Academy. They also embed students within the Royal Ballet Company and Royal Ballet School in London and this obviously helps students stop saying uh, necessary coaching experience to maximise their chances of getting employment post-graduation. So in addition to the Strength and Conditioning courses, they offer both undergraduate and postgraduate programmes in physiology and sports rehab, but if you're interested in getting to know more about the courses at St Mary's, make sure you visit their website uh, which is stmarys.ac.uk forward slash courses. Just moving on slightly. Um, Monitoring fatigue and how that differs throughout the year, throughout the season. Just want to talk to us a little bit about that and how you go about managing managing them changes and them fluctuations, and so to get to get an insight into your guys and when they disappear for internationals and how you manage that might be quite interesting
1: yeah. as well. Yeah, so I think like most clubs we have, uh, we use kitman to use their wellness tools. So like they'll answer questions on sleep, soreness, um, readiness to train injuries, etc., and everything else that will come into that. We're lucky that the RFU also uses that for their wellness data. So all the stuff that our England boys fill out when they're away on camp fills through to us and vice versa. And the same is, it's the same with all the GPS data as well. So that's quite easily shared between us and, and the RFU. So the England stuff really is seamless now. Um, in terms of – so we use all that wellness data when it comes in, and every morning I will update Guzzy and the other coaches about um, the readiness of the squad. So that on like a day-to-day basis is how it's used. So sometimes we've, we've sent individuals off to, to go and sleep before. When they've had bad night's sleep, we'll modify training off the back of that. Uh, and then sort of longitudinally, we will use it to uh, review like – over longer terms as well. So we used our data from last year to review how we trained and we've changed the training structure of our week. Uh, it was quite a weird one actually, like before Guzzy came in, Gaz and I had spent a lot of time going back and forth about was the structure to our week, the best structure you could have in a rugby environment. Um, And we kind of came down to the conclusion that we wanted to alter a couple of things. And so we had this big presentation prepared for when Guzzy turned up to be like, this is how we want to change the structure of the week, et cetera. And Guzzi walked in and he's like, oh, I've been thinking about this for ages. And now that, you know, I'm in charge here, I I think we should train this way. And it was exactly the same way that we'd already spent all this time to make this present. So the presentation never saw light of day. But the good news was No, no, because it it was already sort of Guzzy's uh, idea that that's how he wanted to change stuff. He wanted to change the structure of the week. He didn't think the conventional structure. So what was the structure? So what was the structure
0: and what did it go to?
1: So we used to train coming Monday and then Monday afternoon would be like a lower level, like, um, in our old sort of language, like a medium session, which is not the the best phrase for it, like low, like moderate intensity of everything. Then Tuesday you'd have your double days, your traditional like units in the morning. Where the forwards would go through scrums line outs etc and then you'd have a harder session in the afternoon and that would incorporate conditioning games and put the boys under some dress you'd then have wednesday off the thursday session would then be slightly shorter uh, and would more be geared towards sort of like tactical preparation for the weekend um and then the friday would be a team run then we'd play on a saturday now that's obviously like your, your typical seven day turnaround so there were some changes when it became six days and stuff but what we basically started to think at the back end of last year is that Tuesday just wasn't the best place to have your hardest training day. Um, and I think obviously it came about because Tuesday's seems to be the first day that's furthest away from the game, uh, the next game, for you to be able to train hard. But we were just seeing from like our wellness data and chatting to some individuals and Guzzi from his experience of playing and then also obviously coaching at Uh, England and stuff and chatting to lads there was that actually you're probably fresher by the Wednesday but for some reason there was kind of this convention of having Wednesdays off so we moved to having um Mondays basically became like a really low-key like installation build day is what we term it in our language Uh, then Tuesdays was when you started to install you started to build on what you'd install on the Monday and sort of speed it up, but you gave plenty of rest to the guys and the forwards would then get their time to go through all of their set-piece stuff. And then the Wednesday was really when we will put the guys under some kind of duress. So it's a hard session. It's very short, sharp, like 45 minutes tops, um, but it'll be real condensed. The running demands are way above a game. Uh, The density demands are way above a game. There's uh, contact elements involved in that as well. And then the Thursday would be off. And then the Friday is like a... Uh, well, you've probably got like 12 minutes of forward stuff and then like 10 minutes tops of what we term a sharpen, but it's essentially a team run before the the day. So it just means that when you're going hard on that Wednesday, the guys are way, way fresher. And there was like, obviously like it took a while for everyone to sort of adjust to it just for like terms of general patterns. But once we got into the flow of it pretty early on, we've, we were chatting about it the other day and we were like, we wouldn't change back. It, it works for us. I'm not saying it would work for everyone, but for in, in our setup, it works for us. Um, and it's it kind of led into the so I'm started doing a professional doctorate up at Liverpool John Moores with uh Barry Drust. and nice. it's around tactical periodization in rugby. Uh, and it was quite nice again, like it was quite nicely timed that literally at the time when we were having all these thoughts, cuz he rocked up with the same kind of thoughts. And he's having spent time at England and stuff, he's he's very much of the mindset of uh using like a tactical periodization obviously covers like a multitude of of sins but going that way about it and really trying to accentuate different tactical and physical demands throughout the week to kind of do them at the best place during the week physiologically as well as tactically and technically
0: so just going back to the readiness stuff, what um what are you getting the guys to do to give you that that kind of information? Just questionnaires, or is there other things involved?
1: So at the moment, it's it's um it's all subjective because um, we just find we when I first started, we had or we utilised uh, the Amiga Wave, so looking at HRV and all that kind of stuff, and we just found with our population. And in our setup, it just didn't give us any real meaningful information, to be honest. I'm not saying it never will. I'm sure, like, in my mind, like, more aerobically demanding sports or sports like triathlons, cycling, uh, like, potentially AFL, football, etc., you could probably get a lot more mileage out of it because the greatest stress on the body is from, like, the aerobic system in terms of what they're doing. Whereas in rugby, like all the fatigue in rugby union is just driven by the collisions. Like they don't, when you look at the GPS statistics, they're not actually that um, impressive in terms of, of what they do, but it's the collisions, it's the scrums, all that stuff that takes out of you. Um, So we just found that using something like HRV wasn't really very useful for us in that setting. Um, And then subjective, we've, we've found that it's worked for us. I think early on, and it was all on me like i made the mistake of i think when you come from a banking background like you kind of just think well data comes in and everyone presumes you don't ask the data unless you're using it and i kind of missed the point that if you don't communicate and you hear everyone say this so it wasn't like i had this like revelation and discovered something that no one else ever thought but <laughs> like you hear everyone say it like if you can collect wellness data make sure you go and talk to them and i i just did a very uh poor job of doing that at the start and now we make a big point of going and talking to them and guzzy will talk to them about it and that all that kind of having the coaches on board with it as well makes a massive difference because obviously the guys then see the reason why you fill it in uh and they see the changes that come off the back of it and and like even like last year's wellness data we use that massively as our case for changing the training week um because all that data just started to back up what we were, we were thinking. Um, and we've, we've started to think about and potentially might bring in next year using some kind of, sort of sub maximal running test. Like I know a lot of uh, football setups use that as a marker of, of readiness to train, like first or second day back after a match. And we're going to start looking at that to see if that gives us any sort of useful data in terms of readiness. Um, but aside from the wellness question, we know the downfalls of the subjective nature of it. But we're happy with those downfalls, and it it works really well for us.
0: Excellent. So on the on the flip side, actually pushing these guys to develop fitness, what's and developing your model? What's your model look like? And again, going back to the whole journey thing, what was the journey to get to what this model looks like now and how it's implemented?
1: So I guess it's. It's been a huge sort of collaborative process. So like myself, um, Gaz Tong, Adam Bishop, Edley, Al Barnard, and then Tim Hall, who's gone off to, to England. Um, we've all played like a part in how it's developed over the years. Um, and when we first started off, I think it was, or when I first started off, it was very much based sort of around that Charlie Francis model of like tempos, etc., and everything else like that. And we used to have a fair amount of sort of uh, off-feet kit involved as well. And I think what I've learned over time is that, um, and it's something that I think actually probably changed quite early on because of the experience of guys like Damsey and Gaz was that you're, I find it strange when anyone's tied to like one method when they're like, oh yeah, all my guys do Charlie Francis's extensive tempos or all my guys do mass because surely in like a squad of 60, you've got such a variety, especially in rugby union, such a variety of demands. So, like the difference between someone's max speed and their mass speed can play a large part in determining how stressful a training modality is. Um, and that sort of brought us around to this idea where rather than just being like this sort of like, here's our system of one thing, our system now is very much like a sorting hat in effect where you're like, well, you know, you know, you'll take his max speed, we'll take his mass speed that we we take from our one of our preseason fitness tests. I mean, you're looking at the percentages of that, so you you know you quickly realise that for some guys doing extensive tempos at 70% of their max speed does sort of fall into that area of like 100 to 130% of mass, versus some quicker guys like that's actually way way above. So like that extensive tempo becomes way more stressful to them because they're way quicker. And then how you structure that varies. So our, our model has very much become like we have like a, a menu of, of options and we have an idea. We try and categorize the guys into what each individual needs rather than just being like, right, we'll take everyone's scores and now we'll do mass 15 on, 15 off for the entirety of the year and that's how we'll work it because we just found that it, there were too many times when you would have non-responders to everything. So I guess what we've kind of tried to evolve is like a thought process where we go like – if this guy is this, then he'll probably respond best to this at this time of the year, versus a cart bl- like a blanket approach to everyone. Yeah.
0: So how how does surgeon inter- interrupt again? But how does that play out with new players when they come in? Do you just, again just book at them and just think hey, this guy fits into this uh, category, therefore
1: we think this? I guess it depends on when they come because obviously if they come in early in preseason, they'll go through the same battery of tests as everyone else and then you are working off of certain assumptions so like if he's you know like he looks fairly similar to in terms of like his outputs etc another guy we've had then he'll probably move into that group um I mean over time like you know most guys we have will be with us for at least 2 years over time you get a fairly good idea of where they're moving to and what and what they need to work on um If someone comes in mid-season, that then becomes like a a much harder process because you may not have the same windows of opportunity to get that kind of information off of them. And that's when you do start working on assumptions. And that, to be honest, that's when you do start to have to sort of um, make certain assumptions and see how they play out. And that's way more, being honest, that's way more hit and miss. But generally, when someone comes in the middle of the season, you're not going to have to work on their fitness so much. They've probably come in mid-season to cover an injury and therefore the first pressing need isn't to get them fitter, it's for them to play. And like when someone first comes to us, because some clubs you know, we've got very good relationships with and we'll actually get all of his data from the past six weeks. Other clubs, that's just not always possible. It's not that people don't want to share, but it's just not always possible depending on where that person's come from. Um, We all then, you know, you then have to kind of, Tread cautiously because you don't know what he's come from exactly. So we then just try and make sure that the rugby takes the priority, and then we just add bits over time, as and when it seems to work.
0: So in pre-season, that guys come in that t- that testing ba- that battery test to give you the information that you want. What does that look like?
1: Um, so we will, we currently use uh, like a bronco test, so basically like a one point two k shuttle test. Um, which and we've 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 tried stuff before like a six minute run etc and other other uh testing row uh, testing batteries and we just found that the bronco test has a good competitive element to it as in that it's a race to finish uh it still lasts a long enough duration that you get a good idea of what they sort of uh capacity is over five, six minutes, whatever you want to call it aerobic capacity per se is, is probably slightly debatable. And then we kind of just feel like that when we've compared it to our six minute run scores from previous years, that actually you see quite a high correlation and it, and it does make a lot of sense to us to then use that because of its change of direction, nature, etc., and everything else. Uh, I mean, in terms of like determining their max velocities, the boys will wear their GPS units for everything they do throughout the year and that includes the speed program so as and when each individual works up to their sort of max efforts that's when we'll capture the max velocities but obviously those guys we've had for several years we've got all of how their max velocity has changed over the past well however long they've been with us in the last six years uh, and so that starts to form part of their profile uh, and then Just we start remember- oh god mate sorry no no no, no. And then, like on top of that like Obviously, with new guys you don't have this data with, but the guys that we we start to sort of look at contact fitness, like time off the ground, et cetera, and stuff like that, to give us a greater picture of where they need to go to. Because obviously not all of it is purely about uh, the running side of things. Like some guys just need to become bigger, more powerful. And so like that's taking in the entire spectrum of things in terms of where we then direct their training.
0: What I was going to say, and sorry to interject again, but... One thing I wanted to ask you about while it was on my mind was, and this is based off our initial meeting, which was a couple of weeks ago, and you made it very easy for me to follow my words in the, uh, in the panel for Kitman Labs. And it was just to get an insight into how you're using and how much depth you're going into with Kitman. To make sense of the amount of data that you collect, I know this is a bit left field from what we've been chatting about, yeah. but I just thought I'd ask it now while I remember, because I think it'd be it'd be really interesting. Just given what kind of what Kitman kit are trying to do with you know with their product, so I try to offer more insight rather right, yeah. than just collection of data. So it'd be interesting to get where that fits at, at Quinn's and how you're working with them to, to get what you want yeah. and what
1: you need. So the thing that we'd probably flirted with Kitman for several years. Like I remember talking to Stephen Smith, like when I first started and then we only really came on board with them last year. So it was a good, like five year courting process, if you want to call it that. (laughs) Um, and I think for us early on, we weren't, we weren't so attracted by the idea of like sort of arbitrary traffic lighting. Um, and it's like, one of my like pet hates is that I think people often, I've had conversations with coaches, before, where they're like, Oh, well, we just want like this one number to sum up their fatigue. And I'm like, That fatigue's just not that simple. Like, if you give them that one number, we it's going to fall down really quick because it's like a bad example. It's like scientism. It's a bad example of just science, not even science because it can't do it, but like people trying to use science to oversimplify something that's not that simple. Um, but what, when through our conversations with um, Stephen, like, it kind of just started to evolve where, what we saw Kitman as, and to be fair, what he was selling as was was a communication tool. Like everyone's so busy getting everyone in the same room at the same time is a difficult thing. So having like an online online cloud system, whereby people can go in and, and go through all the data, look at the data, interrogate it how they want to interrogate it, it just became a much easier way of warehousing and communicating data than we previously had. Because beforehand, like I would house most things on like obviously an Excel spreadsheet and I would then be the bottleneck because if Gaz wanted to look at something at 10 o'clock at night, he's having to send me an email for me to send him like the link to the Excel file. Cause it was too big to put on Dropbox. And it just became <laughs> like that. And that was the constraints you kind of had. And so we're like, oh well, look, if Kitman's there, you can now put all that stuff on there. And there's loads of stuff now that we still, we're still in our first year of working with them, getting our heads around um, what, what we feel we can get more out of it and where we can, where it can't do potentially what we want it to do. Um, the alarm analysis has been interesting because it lets us look at things that we've potentially suggested as alarms and sort of realise that they're not because it's like very very quick it lets you realize that some of your alarms actually aren't very good alarms um and the stuff we're working on at the moment is looking at more of the multivariate stuff so the stuff that you would have seen at the conference where it's i think it's what everyone sort of knows and wants it's like if this is down and this is up and that's also the case then this is probably like the risk is now increased um and certainly from my banking background that's how i would view risk rather than a real simple like your acute chronics high that's bad right because that's like extrapolating something out from a, uh, like a, a ratio, like, a, it I'm not, I know everyone's jumped on the bandwagon of like everyone first jumps on the bandwagon, loving acute chronic and everyone jumps on the bandwagon bashing it. Like it, I think for me, it's a really good logical tool to see spikes and dips. And then you can think about the context around that. Um, but it is still a mathematical abstract. Like there is no physiology related to like a 1.4 ratio. Like that doesn't necessarily mean anything in the body. So like I think that's where Kitman's been good for us is it allows us to sort of interrogate certain things that we've uh, thought about and lets us refine those systems. Um, but first and foremost, it's the, the communication tool from the boys being able to fill out, like the app works seamlessly from the player's perspective. Um, they can do it anytime, anywhere. We can put a, like a multitude of different questionnaires on there. Like so, someone who's a bad sleeper, we can go into more depth with... We're quite lucky where we're based that we're next to the, um, University of Surrey and they have like the European Research Sleep Institute. So they've been really good with us, helping us up with like questionnaires to sort of interrogate people's sleep data a bit more in a bit more depth and the use of activity bands to then have a look at perceived sleep versus actual sleep. Um, and that's what I mean, like Kitman's just been good in that respect. Like it's just somewhere it's all where how they let you start to look at the data. Sometimes you might look at the data and realize that actually the data is absolutely useless. Um, and it helps with that process of, like, everyone goes through of sorting out what's good and sorting out what's bad. Um, and that's where we are at with Kitman and that project. is is It's still early, but it's, it's helped us refine a lot of processes.
0: Lovely. And that brings me very nicely onto my final point, which was pretty moving back to what we chatted about at the start with your background in banking, which you've mentioned a couple of times, and your skepticism and problems with data that you – may have come across or may be coming across um at the moment just want to chat to us a little bit about that
1: yeah yeah sure it's, so it's i i think the guys at work a will laugh because they i think they get fed off of me saying stuff about being in banking so i can already hear it <laughs> i can already hear that i'm gonna get the piss taken out of me come come monday morning about this and then also the fact that so i often go on rants about data and and stuff so i'll try and make this less ranty but i think the, the thing that i find is the first step that everyone always talks about is interrogating whether the data is telling you exactly what you think it's telling you and i think sometimes and i've been very guilty of this of falling down at that hurdle like we we're talking about the gps velocity bands earlier and stuff like that i don't think everyone ever really thinks of it that much but i then think when you're using that as your one metric to look for uh predictions of injury like i I think it starts to become slightly flawed and then um it then becomes like one of my pet hates that's on top of that is when people start saying stuff like the science says or like russian literature says and i'm like i don't know if you've read the russian literature and science doesn't say anything because it's a subject and the one problem you can see it you know like there's bigger social commentators than than me you've pointed out the point this idea of like scientism and like when michael gove came out during the whole brexit thing and said people are fed up of experts it's it's kind of the thing that happens in sports science as well because everyone has their own papers that back up their own stuff their own opinions everyone goes down this idea of being like science says this science says that like russian literature this blah 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 and i'm like i don't know if you've critically assessed where this is coming from i don't know why you think the idea of science is an authority figure as in you can cherry pick any paper to back up what you're saying so that's not like if you're looking at like an academic marking scene that's not critical thinking that's just telling me what someone else has said um and that kind of applies to today like I, I was saying to you earlier like i get asked by quins quite often to present to our commercial partners and they're quite often sort of saying like oh so how do you use ai and like, we don't use AI. Like, we, we, are, we are not at that level. Like, the volume of data that we used to, that not me, but the bank used to handle daily probably trumps what we as a sports science department have ever handled in our entire time. So, this idea that like you're going to go through the data and like sift it and throw it against the wall and see what an algorithm kicks out, like, kind of unnerves me. Cause I think you should have a, a well framed question first to interrogate your data rather than going through the process of like, let's see what correlates. Um, and you see a lot of that as well. Just, and this is across all the sciences that like, you can see a lot of people with just bad correlation. And, um, Ben Goldacre, the guy who writes a lot about, uh, like the health service and stuff. So he's got a book called bad science and several ones that are a follow up to it. And he writes about this, like how you see the daily mail headline one day being like dark chocolate causes cancer. And the next day it's, Dark causes uh, cures cancer. It's 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 just I think a wider problem about people just sort of using science as this big justification without really ever interrogating the science behind it. Um, so that did actually become very ranty. So um, yeah, oh, hello, I apologise. Uh, it, yeah, it's just it's one of those ones. And I think I, the way that I've I fell into that trap is I think because of my background. People are like, oh, you'll be really good at this. Here's some data. Go and find out how we win. And I was like, they, and, I, and, I, and obviously because, you know, I was relatively new to the field. You're eager to impress. You try and go off and look at all of these things and like, does, you know, does the number of like, the, the, the meters run on a Thursday correlate to when we win? And the answer probably to most logical people who have been in the industry for a long time is no. Um, and because you're looking at the wrong thing, like there there, should, there there isn't, unless it's a really excessive amount of running on a Thursday, um, that's not why you win a game. Like that's, that's not, what the the problem is. So I just think sometimes the questions that are asked of data are the bigger problem because the data is inanimate, so it doesn't do a thing. It's the questions you ask of it that are quite important.
0: What a fantastic way to finish off. A little a little quotable
1: yeah, I... a little phrase
0: there. I love that. That's almost planned.
1: I was trying to stay away from like soundbite stuff because that's my other pet hate. You nailed it. Yeah, God, I'm like, my, I'm doing, I'm i turning the person I hate the most. I think that that's <laughs> a line from Batman, isn't it? I've I've turned. It is. Yeah. that was class. I enjoyed just, that. Yeah, so, I'm gonna. Yeah, I've
0: just written a note when that happens so I can rip that out <laughs> and uh, share it yeah. everywhere. But you've you you mentioned bad science there. I did. I have enjoyed that book. That's um. And that's the first, is that the first book that you read in the MSC?
1: Maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm pretty sure John, and I, I came across that because John and Dan put it on the reading list. Uh, yes. And I think a lot of my thoughts about science, et cetera, is probably colored by uh, Dan's, I'm not saying anywhere near like the same sort of level of, of him, but like his thought processes and stuff on that and the way that he interrogates stuff. And like I said earlier, like, I was lucky to work with guys like Andre and Gaz early on, who are very much of that mindset as well they don't really take stuff as written they they interrogate it and pull it apart and i think that's the biggest sort of learn on that i've had um during my time at quinn's is it's not don't trust anyone but like do your own critical thinking
0: absolutely so ab- apart from apart from bad science i'm going to drop this on you any of the books that have influenced your practice either snc or probably most likely not uh, S&C? so i think
1: everyone's quite common, like Nate Silver's, the single in the noise, just about how you work with data and interpret data. Uh, and it's not too dry. Like it's a relatively interesting read. Uh, then probably also like, I like, um, thinking fast and thinking slow, which I think I think think everyone's done the rounds in an S and C on that one, but that I think in terms of being aware of your own biases is, um, is quite key. Uh, just trying to think of what other ones there are as well. Uh, I mean, I think those are pre- oh, those three are probably the the best start. I reckon yeah. like Bad Science, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, and then Listening to the, the Noise. I think I can't think of much beyond that. If they come back to me, I'll, I'll message you and let you know. But yeah, no, that's good. I like it. Three good recommendations. Yeah. So anyone that wants to get in touch,
0: have a little chat about what you're doing at Quinn's. Uh, anything else what's the
1: best place to get you uh, probably Twitter and I'm now frantically searching for my phone because I'm so bad at Twitter that I'm trying to find out what my Twitter hand is I'm pretty sure it's at Bachelor Tom yeah there we go at Bachelor Tom is where, you, uh, where you'll find me on Twitter um, I'm trying to be better at it so I'm not particularly active on there but I'm trying to be more active uh, I think there's... do you know
0: what you need do you know what you need a few sound bites. Oh, you no, know,
1: yeah uh, that, that's what I'm tra- that's what I'm worried about I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the person who spends their time trying to figure out how to make something catchy rather than, do you know what I mean? Like, you see some stuff sometimes. I like, exactly what you mean. I'm like, I don't know what, I know what that means, but I don't know why you're saying it. Um, so, so yeah. It's like the old I, S&C riddle. Yeah yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, everyone, yeah. 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 Everything seems to be turning into Batman today. Yeah. Everything is yeah. like, yeah. everyone's the riddler. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, at Bachelor Tom and people can drop your yeah. message or get in touch or ask you questions or whatever. Yeah. So I will wrap, finish there, and just thank you for your giving up your time, giving up 50 minutes of your time on a Thursday evening to have a chat. No, it's a, so a really appreciate it's it. It's a pleasure, mate. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Yes. We'll speak soon. Yep. Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 236 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Tom. So big thanks to Tom for coming on and giving his take on how they do things at Harlequins but also go into that, quite a lot of detail and, and giving personal information like salaries um, of what it's like to work in investment banking and some of the uh, transferable skills that he transferred from that background into his role at Harlequins. So also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, to iMeasureU, Fatigue Science and St Mary's University for sponsoring this episode today. So thanks for tuning in, thanks for your constant support and I will speak to you next week.